Is there any truth to the discovery that Pip made concerning the source of his great expectations? And if his money did indeed come from a criminal, what does that mean for his future? These are the questions that will plague Pip in these upcoming chapters. But my name is Art, and welcome to the Bookshelf Odyssey podcast. And today we are doing a deep dive into Charles Dickens's Great Expectations. So uh, the first thing I want to do is I just want to thank those of you who have been continuing to follow along and leaving comments on the YouTube channel. Cheryl posted a comment on uh, two videos ago, number 11, and uh, she said that watching these, it's like watching you fall in love with Dickens again, uh, or for the first time, or falling in love with him again. And that's certainly been the case. Uh, I have really just come to love rereading this book with all of you and just the insights that you're helping to bring to this to the book uh, has really been a phenomenal uh, experience for me and uh, book in with Deborah on her channel uh, she's been following along with me as well she said it was interesting to see Pip reflecting on his changing attitudes and behavior towards money and debt and how his great expectations had changed these I found the social norms and behaviors around death and the funeral interesting to read about. And then she also mentioned she liked Biddy and I thought she was very insightful. We both share a great love for Wemmick and his castle and the aged parent and just what an amazing place that is. And I, I hope one day if I'm ever rich, you know, to make my own castle like that, that would be fantastic. Deborah also commented on the last video and she said that Chapter 39 was interesting and she thinks and she had figured out where the plot was going and who is responsible for Pip's expectations, which I say, you know, congrats to you, Deborah. I and I remember when I first read it, I had no clue. She had a question, though, and maybe you folks can answer this because I'm not sure about this. But she said that uh, she feels that at the time of writing, this sort of plot twist or big reveal would have been far more groundbreaking than maybe we would have viewed it. We would view it today. Like today, we kind of expect, we're not surprised when there's a plot twist because, I mean, you know what I mean? Plot twists sometimes surprise us, but it's like watching an M. Night Shyamalan movie. You know there's a plot twist coming. You just don't know what it is yet. So was that a little more groundbreaking during Dickens' time? And I'm not sure. So if you know about that, uh, if you would know an answer to that or have insight into that, we'd love to hear how how original having a plot twist would be in, in a book like Dickens and, and a plot twist like this where he misdirects you. And she compares that to like Agatha Christie and some other modern day writers. And also uh, comments about just the uh, uh, the idea of being careful what you wish for, uh, which is very much, I think, a theme of this book. What I find interesting about this misdirection that Dickens had throughout this first two thirds of this book is... It reminds me of the fact that he likes magic. Yeah, Dickens does. He he was very much a fan of of magic. You know, like um, not like wizards and whatnot, but like uh, you know, like doing magic tricks. You know, the whole point of a magic trick is misdirection. You know, you're watching the hand over here while you pull a quarter out of somebody's ear, something like that. You know, and he had a, a conjuring. That's the word I'm looking for. And he had a whole act. Um, of how if of a persona and everything that he would do uh and was for uh for like conjuring acts 
and apparently he was quite good at it. Uh, and that would be something I would love to see one day if I, uh, as soon as I build my time machine, going back in time, and I'm going to watch him do a magic act as well as listen to him read some of his stories. But it's that whole idea of misdirection, and I think is very much in keeping with his character. Uh, but I don't know how original it is compared to plots at the time. I can think of different plots and stories that would have a twist, but you know, I don't know how much of that is still fresh and new for this time period. Another thing I want to do is I want to recommend a book to you, and it's called uh, The Artful Dickens, and I just started reading it. It's by a man named John Mullen, and it's a book of very readable essays about basically all about what makes Dickens such a great writer, and I've only read the first chapter so far, and it had some very interesting thoughts already about Great Expectations. So uh, I would love to direct you to that. It's available on Audible even, and I have the audiobook version of it, and it's just a real interesting, fascinating read. One of the things he pointed out uh, in the first chapter, or the second chapter technically, it's about um, Dickens' ability to fantasize and using the phrase as if, you know, that these things happened as if it was this. And he uses fancy and imagination to help describe something. One of the classics being the opening to uh, Bleak House and how he describes the city fog. Uh, But he had some really insightful things to say about Great Expectations. And I think if you've read this far in Great Expectations, there's nothing that is spoiled up to that point. One of the things he also pointed out was that that clicking noise that we get in Mag, Magwitch's throat and that it's repeated at least three times in the novel and each time it's under a moment of great emotional distress and how Dickens uses this idea of of a mechanical clockwork to help describe Magwitch's deep emotional process. Uh, it just it was really interesting to see that pointed out and he had made a couple other insights uh, that I think I think it's worth you going to to pick up that book and look and reading it if that's sounds like it'd be of an interest to your to you. All that aside, uh, we have to get into three chapters today. So let's continue our deep dive into Dickens. Uh, we begin with chapter forty, first part now of book three. And again, it was still a dark and stormy night. Uh, I I love that phrase. I'm going to use it all the time. Okay, it was a dark and stormy night, and Pip is still ruminating and thinking about all that has happened to him over, you know, the events of the last chapter. You know, he he can't sleep, so he gets up to basically have the night watchman turn on lights, and he he stumbles across somebody in his stairwell, and this man escapes into the night. And so basically Pip finds somebody lurking by his door. The the doorman, or the watchman, uh, acknowledges that there were two people that came in with Magwitch, not just one. So Pip has a plan. He realizes that Magwitch, who is his convict, people are going to know, you know, he's afraid of discovery still. So Pip has a plan to disguise Magwitch. But first he goes to Jaggers to to confirm that these things are true. So, you know, I think he's still holding out hope against hope. Is this true? Is this really what happened as, as Magwitch has told me? And Jaggers, of course, wants to speak in hypotheticals. Jaggers is smart, so he realizes if Magwitch is here in person, that means he's basically still an escaped convict. He escaped from Australia, 
and has come back. And if that's true, then he is liable, according to the law, to turn this man in. And he doesn't want to have anything to do with that. So he says, let's speak in hypotheticals. But sure enough, it's true. Mrs. Havisham has no part in this expectation. His money came from a criminal. So Pip has spent his whole life trying to escape from this criminal. And it's come to pass that he owes everything to this criminal. We find that Pip can't sleep. He keeps thinking about running away. He's thinking, maybe I'll just run away to India. Uh, one of the things that I found interesting about his uh, Pip's discussion with the convict is the convict was telling him, you know, I want to see you spending money like a gentleman. And that'll be my pleasure, he says. My pleasure will be fur to see him do it. And blast you all, he wound up, looking around the room and snapping his fingers once with a loud snap. Blast you, everyone, from the judge in his wig to the colonists stirring up the dust. I'll show a better gentleman than the whole kit on you put together. And I wonder if that's not his motivation, that he wants to prove that he, as a low-class criminal, can make a better gentleman than the gentleman class can produce. And we see that there's going to be reasons for that, perhaps, as we get more and more of Magwitch's backstory. So Pip is continuing to be weighed down by this secret. Uh, and we find that it's still affecting him and everything he sees and feels. Uh, in chapter 40, closer towards the end, he says, This effect on my anxious fancy was partly referable, no doubt, to his old face and manner growing more familiar to me. But I believe, too, that he dragged one of his legs as if there were still a weight of iron on it, and that from head to foot there was convict in the very grain of the man. So he just feels like everything about this man screams out convict, and that he's going to be caught. And like I said, he's, he's thinking of running away when Herbert arrives at the end of chapter 40. He feels like this time has, like a whole year has passed, when in, in truth only about five days has passed. and. When Herbert arrives home, he is startled to find this convict in his house. And Pip is going to say, basically, sit down. I've got to tell you a story. And the convict makes him swear on this Bible, uh, Herbert, to swear on this Bible that he carries with him that he won't tell anyone. And uh, I, I find this chapter ends in a fascinating way when the convict says, Now, you're on your oath, you know, and never believe me on mine if Pip shan't make a gentleman on you. And I'm wondering if this convict is already figuring out that I've made Pip a gentleman and now Pip is going to make this, this kid a gentleman. And so in that sense that Pip is his adopted son, you could say. And now there's just this, he wants to see that continue on. That's where he's finding his, his drive here. That's his motivation. That was part 25 written in May 18th, 1861. Uh, not a whole lot there to deal with yet, but just basically answering some questions we might have had. What do you think of this revelation? Uh, were you able to figure it out uh, like Deborah did? Or, you know, were you surprised like I was? Uh, I, I think several have been surprised at this revelation. But it's, I think it was just masterfully done. Because now when you think back over all those chapters, you realize, wait a minute, the only one who is really saying it came from Miss Havisham was Pip. And nobody corrected him, and everyone seemed to to wink and nod at at his his surmisings. Let's go ahead and look at chapters forty one and forty two uh, real quick, and then we can think about some questions here at the end. Chapter forty one begins with Pip finally telling the truth to someone, and he tells it to Herbert. He said that in vain should I attempt to describe the astonishment and disquiet of Herbert 
when he and I and Provis sat down before the fire, and I recounted the whole of the secret, enough that I saw my own feelings reflected in Herbert's face, and, not least among them, my repugnance towards the man who had done so much for me. And, so, and then this repeated question uh, that Herbert and Pip discuss among themselves. What was to be done? What are we going to do about this? Pip and Herbert agree that uh, this money should not be used anymore. Uh, now, I don't think you could say that Magwitch got the money illegally. I mean, it sounds like, if I understand the story right, he earned it while uh, being a shepherd in Australia, but he did it as a crook. And then he came back illegally and is now in hiding and is giving all of his money to Pip. They also realize that they need to get this man out of town as fast as they can. Pip, the narrator, says this. He says, yes, even though I was so wretched in having him at large and near me, and even though I would far rather have worked at the forge all the days of my life than I would ever have come to this. But there's no staving off the question, what was to be done? What was to be done? And that's the big question, uh, as I said. Herbert, I love the way he answers Pip, that he says, you feel convinced that you must break with him. And Pip says, Herbert, can you ask me? You know, how can you ask me that? Yes, of course. And Herbert says, and you have, and are bound to have, the tenderness for the life he has risked on your account, that you must save him, if possible, from throwing it away. Then you must get him out of England before you stir a finger to extricate yourself. That done, extricate yourself in heaven's name, and we'll see it out together, dear old boy. And I, I love that. We'll see it out together. Herbert says, I'm in this with you. I'm going to help you. We're going to see it out together. We're going to deal with all of your, you know, the debt you have. Now you don't want to use this money to pay off that debt. You know, he understands all of the, the things that are complicating this situation. But Herbert says, I'm in this with you. You're not alone. And what a, what a good man Herbert has turned into. Filling that role, I think that Joe would have, would have filled for him if he had let him. And so now they, they sit down and they, they, need to, they need to know the story of who Magwitch is, how he got there, and why, you know, they want to know everything. And so chapter 42, we get Magwitch's backstory from uh, his, his point of view and as to what happened. Beginning of chapter 42, Magwitch summarizes his life. If you were to do it in a short sentence, it would be this. In jail, out of jail. In jail and out of jail. In jail and out of jail. Uh, that's his life. What I find is that when he, he talks about when he was younger, how he was orphaned, he was hungry, he was passed from family to family, and the church and other people, they would give him, said, give him tracts, what I couldn't read, and made me speeches, what I couldn't understand. They always went on again me about the devil. But what the devil was I to do? I must put something into my stomach, mustn't I? Howsomever, I'm getting, I'm a getting low, and I know it's due. Dear boy and Pip's comrade, don't you be afeard of me being low. You know, as a kid, he was starving. And so he would steal to eat. And the church and others like that, that could have helped him, all they did was preach against what he was doing. And I, you know, and I get that. You know, it's hard to understand the truth when you're hungry, right? And that also leads me to think, how different would Magwitch's life have been if he had met somebody like Joe or somebody like, like Biddy or uh, Herbert even, just to have a friend? Uh, or someone to care for him. In his vagrancy, Magwitch meets 
a gentleman who turns out not to be a gentleman, but his name is Compuson. Uh, so Magwitch and Compuson, Compuson uh, team up uh, for a life of crime, forgeries and counterfeits and things like that. And then uh, Compuson had another partner named Arthur who was sick and dying. And he has this vision of, as he's on his deathbed, of this woman in white tormenting him. And boy, that rings a bell, doesn't it? <laughs> you know, that sounds familiar. So Compuson uses Magwitch for a lot of work. They were eventually arrested for counterfeits, uh, activities for, for creating counterfeit money for forgery, things of that nature. This is interesting. Now, talk about being a, a modern theme novel. I know I didn't catch on to this when I read it the first couple of times, but events in the last few years have really made me see this in a new light is that basically Compuson, since he looked like a gentleman, was given a much lighter sentence than Magwitch, who was a thief and looked like a thief and was treated as a thief. So he got twice the amount of punishment that uh, Compuson received because he looked like a gentleman. Uh, and then when they escaped and were recaught, Compuson again gets off easy because they think, well, he looks like a gentleman, so let's give him a second chance. But Magwitch, they pretty much wrote off as saying he is a career criminal. He looks like a thief. He acts like a thief. He'll always be a thief. So let's send him to Australia. If he comes back, then he will be arrested and killed. You know, that's not right. And Dickens doesn't mention any kind of race here. But honestly, I'm seeing a lot of the themes that have been up lately in discussions with things like the Black Lives Matter movement and institutional racism, you know, things like that. And I want to be very careful as I discuss this because I know it's a very sensitive subject. But we see that where maybe somebody like a celebrity or, you know, a white person gets off on a lighter sentence than somebody who might be a person of color. Uh, you know, we, we have seen that happen or they receive a much harsher treatment or sentence than would have normally been given to somebody who looked differently than they did. Really fascinating thoughts here. And I don't know if I had picked that up yet uh, in the last time or in the last few times. I mean, I know I, I haven't picked that up on the last few times I've read this. So there's a benefit to rereading things because not only do I mean, the book stays the same, but we change and our culture changes. And my perspective now as, you know, a 40-something-year-old man is different than when I read it when I was in my 20s and different still from when I read it when I was in my early teens. In my early teens, I really identified with Pip and thought, oh, how wonderful he got rich and he was given money and his, all of his poverty problems have been solved and all of that. But now as, as a, you know, having lived the life I have lived and seen the current events that I've seen, my whole perspective on this book has changed. And we see the unfairness of how Magwitch was treated by society. And I think now through Pip, he is trying to strike back against that. Um, that's my thought right now. Um, and he might explain more as to why he's doing it. Maybe he just thinks it would be funny to do it. I don't know. But if I had to guess, it would be because society has treated him poorly. So he's going to create his own gentleman and live through him vicariously. 
Uh, and so we get a real interesting last final statement when Magwitch finishes his story. Um, Herbert secretly tells Pip in a note, he says, Young Havisham's name was Arthur. Compuson is the man who professed to be Miss Havisham's lover. Now, if you didn't quite catch on which character was which here, Arthur, the, the crook with Compuson, was Miss Havisham's brother or, or half-brother, I think it was. And so Arthur, Miss Havisham's half-brother, joined up with Compuson until Compuson seduced Miss Havisham, jilted her at the at the altar, you know, took money from her, lost lost it gambling. So now Miss Havisham's half brother Arthur is dead. Compuson, we have no idea where he's at right now, uh, or do we? And then Magwitch's role in this is that he was the young a young apprentice of Compuson's, because his other partner Arthur was was dying and ended up dying. So is it possible that Magwitch is wanting to groom Pip to become to him what he was, what Magwitch was to Compuson? And then also, I want us to consider this, and we can discuss it in the comments below. I'd love to hear your thoughts. How would Magwitch's life be different if he had been with somebody who cared for him, like Joe cared for Pip? I mean, I think Pip and Magwitch are two sides of the same coin or, or something like that. You know, there's, there's the two roads to take. One, the path of being unloved, and the other, the path of being loved. How would Magwitch be different in that? If he, how would it even be if he was though an orphan? That the church or, or those who are religious treated him kindly with with food and love and shelter, and not just give him a tract about how wicked he is. And that was something that Dickens very strongly spoke out against: is is the church that would do acts like that instead of showing love and kindness and meeting people's physical needs they just you know preached at them and went on their way and then how would pip's life be different if joe wasn't in his life i, I think we've talked about that in the past but let's let's bring that up again let's talk about that and here we have kind of a big plot twist again that this is all inner interconnected which i know dickens loved to do Pip meets Magwitch in the grave graveyard. Magwitch is connected to Compuson. Compuson is cl is connected to Miss Havisham. Uh, if if I'm following the plot lines right, <laughs> I'd love to know what you all think of this chapter of these chapters of where we're going right now. If it and comment below, we'll keep the conversation going. Also, you can if you haven't already, join us over on Voxer, uh, where we are discussing some of these things there in the chat as well. And I'd love to hear from you. So that brings us to the end of today. I'll be back next Saturday with the next chapters of our reading. You can check out the show notes below to find out which chapters those are. And uh, let me know what you think of the reading so far and whatever thoughts and insights you might have. So uh, thanks again for listening. And as always, I want to remind you that our words and stories have power and you should share yours. And take care.